You're listening to Everyday Evidence, presented by the American Occupational Therapy Association, helping the occupational therapy practitioner apply evidence to practice. Here's your host, Matt Brandenburg. Okay. Today, I am joined by two members of the American Occupational Therapy Association Commission on Practice, Dr. Caitlin Sinovec and Julie Miller. Caitlin is the program manager at the National Institute for Medical Respite Care at the National Healthcare for the Homeless Council. Julie is the clinical director at Professional Child Development Associates. Thank you both for being on the show today. Thank you for having us. It's our pleasure. Um, You both have a breadth of occupational therapy experience and were major contributors to the Occupational Therapy Practice Framework 4th Edition. Um, we have a previous episode featuring interview with Julie Dorsey, outlining the major changes to the OTPF, um, as well as summarizing some of the key takeaways for practice. But today is a little extra special because we're going to dive even deeper and focus on a short course titled Application of the OTPF 4 to Support and Advance OT, which you both were um, part of the presentation group at AOTA Inspire. Um, In this short course, you present three case applications of using the OTPF in person, group, and population interventions. What motivated you to create a short course with a focus on applying the OTPF to practice? I think um, part of the reason why is really, it's the OTPF is such an important document um, that we want people to feel like they understand it and know what the important concepts in it are. Uh, As important as it is, it's also kind of a dense document. Uh, There's a lot of knowledge and information in there. And so the short course really aimed to give some highlights about things that changed from the OTPF3 to the OTPF4, and then also these case studies, which really applied the content in there to these different client groups and um, populations to really help people be able to see how this works and how this fits with my practice. I'd absolutely agree. I think there's something so nice about being able to take the practice framework and really show and model how we can use that information really on a case-by-case basis with what our everyday work looks like as clinicians. I, it sounds, it's such a helpful tool. I, I watched the um, short course and felt like I learned a ton from it. And I do think it'll be very helpful for anyone who hasn't seen it. And this interview, I think, will be helpful for those who have seen it as well um, in using it as a tool uh, for practice. Uh, what existing literature and resources um, did you use to develop these cases? That is such a big question. (laughs) (laughs) Um, All of our work is, is guided, you know, by, by research and literature. And so it's, it's kind of a a big, very large question to ask, what specifically did you use? Um, When we know that, um, you know, all of our assessment process, uh, all of our um, intervention process is is guided by research. So it's it's kind of a, a tricky one to answer in that way. I think what we really tried to do um, for the cases that I was involved in certainly is really to think about what do we what do we see um, and what is a really common experience that we see clinicians engaging with uh, with these different topics. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I think it's that combination. I think that most OT practitioners do every day in practice is, you know, the clinical skills and knowledge that you've gained just from being in practice and doing the work and kind of combining that with, you know, what are the evidence, what are best practices and and sometimes tweaking that, right, to make it apply to your particular situation or circumstance. So definitely that combination approach that I think really reflects what we do every day. Absolutely. And just a a quick note to any of our listeners, if you do hear a a plane or a helicopter in the background, um, Caitlin is calling in from Florida, uh, where she is close to an airport, I believe. Yes. Yeah. A nice small airport where people like to practice flying. So there's lots of planes. (laughs) We encourage piloting as an IADL. Sounds like a very fun and meaningful occupation. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) 
let's go ahead and dive into these case applications. Uh, could you introduce us to the person level case study, which is uh, centered around an infant receiving home health services? Absolutely, I can. So the fun part about making these cases is we were, as a group, kind of charged with this idea of can we can we make cases to represent these different areas of practice between uh, in an individual person and then a group and then a um, larger population case and. Specifically, we took the cases that other members of the commission had already made when they created the individual person, group, and population examples in a table. So in table one in the OTPF4, these were examples. And so it was really fun to be someone kind of charged with creating a case um, based off of this small line of an example. And I worked with another member of the commission uh, to create this this first case study for the person level. And it was really actually a very amazing process to work with another clinician who happens to be in Ohio, who also does feeding work, and I do feeding work in California, and to see how really how similar our work was. And I think similarly, as we work through the different case studies, that's something that the practice framework and the occupational profile help really unify what we do as occupational therapists, really everywhere we are in the country, which was really fun. Um, so that was actually a really fun experience to have to be able to do that and to work with someone who I don't normally work with on an everyday basis and still really be able to quickly put together a case. So in the uh, table one, there was an example of a an infant who was having feeding challenges. So the other member of the COP and I said, okay, well, let's put this together. Um, the first step of that is coming up with an occupational profile. Writing a case is kind of fun. You can use a lot of your own clinical experience. What is a story of a client that we have seen uh, in both of our locations um, with some kind of unifying features? So we came up with the idea um, and made a case on a seven-month-old infant and um, brought up the story of of James. And, and um, Shelley, the other COP member, works in a hospital and NICU setting, and then I work uh, more community practice. So we kind of melded our two areas of practice, uh, creating an example of a child who's been discharged from the hospital and is then entering more of a community early intervention, home-based uh, therapy process. So James, being a seven-month-old infant who spent eight weeks in the NICU due to concerns with weight gain and growth, and specifically notable, he was discharged to his parents' home uh, with a G-tube placement. So when we create the occupational profile, we get to really kind of tell the story of, of who this child is. So I can share some of that information so that we, that we put together. So James is a seven-month-old infant born at 33 weeks gestational age. He spent eight weeks in the NICU following his birth. He always had a difficult time taking his nutrition orally and while in his hospital, um, his mother attempted breastfeeding with the support of the occupational therapy team and a lactation consultant. She tried direct breastfeeding, using a nipple shield, using supplemental nursing system, but wasn't able to transfer more than five milliliters of breast milk during a feeding. And specifically during any oral feeding, James would vomit, um, have a hard diff difficulty accepting and difficulty maintaining latched uh, onto the breast or bottle. As an introduction for this case, Unfortunately, I think that this case is a, a, a common experience for children specifically with feeding challenges in a hospital-based setting. And feeding being a component um, you know, of that baseline health and, and body system regulation that if a child's not able to consume adequate um, nutrition and hydration, it really can impact their ability to be discharged from the hospital. So that core component of um, the OT's role in that discharge planning process and being able to uh, get out of the uh, hospital safely. So um, to continue with, with James, prior to discharge from the NICU, he had a video fluoroscopy study. It didn't show any aspiration, but it did show significant reflux of barium into the nasooral cavities. This is stuff that people who do feeding are really going to understand uh, what that means. Uh, it's also a good reminder that anytime we're working with uh, clients who do have feeding difficulties, we really need to make sure we're understanding and utilizing the medical testing um, that's out there and not making assumptions of safety. We really want to make sure a child's as safe as possible. So making sure there's adequate, uh, 
that the testing has been done and the medical team has been able to work through those things. It also begins to tell the story of kind of this interprofessional collaborative practice we all are doing all the time and understanding our own roles on a case. Additionally, James had an upper GI. He was diagnosed with significant reflux and started on medication for that reflux. And um, because of his ongoing feeding difficulties, in order to be discharged from the NICU, uh, an NG tube was placed and then transitioned to a gastrostomy tube. So for anyone who doesn't know that, that is actually a tube placed directly into the stomach for feeding, so kind of bypassing oral feeding. Often when these tubes are placed, there's there's different reasons. And so sometimes children have a, a G-tube placed and are still encouraged to continue with oral feeding if they're safe. So if their swallowing is safe and maybe it's more of an oral phase feeding challenge or they're not able to um, have enough strength and coordination to do enough volume of, of the formula, then uh, a tube might be placed. But it doesn't mean they can't be an oral feeder at times. This is another careful one is that at times it does mean they shouldn't be an oral feeder. So again, um, clinicians need to make sure they really understand the full context of the history um, on a case like this. What happens often is a child might be discharged home from the hospital and a, a, a period of time will go by and then their, their state early intervention will, will start to kick in. And so we have a funding change. We go from um, a medical, maybe insurance funded system to a home, to community, to state funding for early intervention funding. And there's a transition. And so rather than being in the hospital for care, it might be a home-based um, or potentially in a clinic uh, through early intervention. And so this is kind of the, the crux of the switch of this case of, and then we go after that hospitalization. We're really looking at the long-term picture. At these different junctures, there's different assessments that might happen, right? So there's an assessment that would happen for this case in the hospital and discharge from the hospital. But then the, this case, actually, we said, let's continue it. And let's think about he starts um, home-based care, early intervention-based care. Another assessment would happen. That would be a new clinician. It would be a new group. They'd be referring back to some of that information from the hospital, but then really be able to start uh, moving forward from that point. Absolutely. That's a a wonderful introduction to James. I just want to ask real quick before we keep diving deeper. When you're developing this occupational profile, conducting these assessments and evaluations uh, within the hospital setting and within the home setting, at what points are you referring back to the OTPF and how are you using it throughout this process? The OTPF is such a good document to show us the structure of our professional work, to show us all the components that go into all of our work. And so something like at the evaluation level, we really should be considering, for example, the OTPF gives so much of understanding context. What are all the individual pieces that impact a child's or our client's functioning um, in the environment that supports them socially, personally? Um, and the OTPF has so much content to help us really think deeper at all of those levels. Um, so, you know, we can think of the environment of home, but then also specifically, well, where does he perform this specific occupation within the home? What are the unique characteristics of that location? Does that location support that engagement and process or in some ways inhibiting that in some way? Um, and that's a, that's a good thing that we can really utilize the, the OTPF to give us more, um, I think, density of content of really deepening in our understanding of cases. Um, I think that's something that I've really valued from it, even working on it. And even as we've presented um, the OTPF for in a number of different conferences this past year, as someone who helped, also helped in the editing process, it's as if we learn something new about our practice every time, even as the clinicians who are helping put this together. Um, it's a pretty amazing experience. We'll get back to our interview right after this quick message. You all know we really try to make research more consumable and applicable on everyday evidence. But did you know that just one minute of your time could help us to improve the show, improve the resources the American Occupational Therapy Association provides for practitioners, and improve the application of evidence to practice within our whole field. Please take our one-minute survey. It's only three questions, and you can find the link in this and every episode's description. And support the AOTA in continued efforts to improve our podcasts and to improve the translation of research to practice. Now back to the interview. 
Um, I, I love that. The OT process, or practitioners may be very familiar with the OT process when working with an individual, but the OTPF can really help someone to, to think deeper um, and kind of take their interventions a level further um, to be even more effective in treatment. Back to our, our little friend, James. <laughs> uh, what what were some of his outcomes? What were some of the interventions uh, presented in this case? Sure. So I'm going to switch over because we have all the assessment process. And when we talk about, okay, now intervention, this is also a really unique area based on intervention, based on where we work, the type of work, our funding sources, um, to really dictate maybe how long intervention might occur, right? So if we were only talking about the time that he was in the hospital, you know, we would only be talking about maybe those eight weeks and the intervention that occurred in that. Um, in an early intervention setting, we might be talking about from the time he gets home from the hospital, starts early intervention, until he ages out of early intervention if he still needed it. Um, so it might be a longer duration of care. So that was something that I was, I, I started putting in this component. I'm like, well, it could be that he he works continually in intervention, um, maybe until his third birthday when he transitions out of early intervention. Um, but in that, and and sometimes our funding sources guide us in this to under, understand um, what are the requirements of that. So I said, well, in my setting, in in California, early intervention often goes within six month uh, groups. So every six months we do um, a, a reassessment and progress report, um, and at those times we go back over the goals we've established for this for this client, and we go back through and we probably do some reassessment at those periods of times of what is the child's function? What is their need? Um, additionally, I think for in, in this type of case, um, the original need, which, which um, led for the referral possibly to an occupational therapist supporting this case, um, at times in the in those reevaluation periods, we might find other things that also need support, particularly in early intervention. While feeding might have been the acute concern, um, when we meet that family and when we see that child over time, we might be able to see other areas of development that need support. Maybe we see other motor or sensory differences in that child that need support, um, and can really think about occupation for that family and that parent-child interaction at the same time. So we created some goals and for, for this child, for, for example, um, goals to increase oral acceptance of food and liquids, recognizing that at seven months old, he hopefully was at the, he was at the age to really start thinking about transitioning uh, to solids. And so that's a good example of how we take what other children are doing at this age and stage and, and is this child's body and are they safely ready to start progressing and not just focusing only on drinking a bottle? For example, we said, oh, but he's seven months old. That would be a time period that naturally children might be introduced to uh, solids. Uh, we also had a goal for increasing his tolerance for um, oral sensory input to support food exploration and oral awareness. We often know children who have feeding challenges might have some oral hypersensitivity. That comes up as gagging. That might come up as kind of refusal and uh, disinterest or being uncomfortable with food or toys or anything around their mouth. And so sometimes that's um, non-food pre-feeding activities that are done in therapy and really highlighting the importance of that um, natural component of development of exploring with your with your mouth in your hands um, and touch. Uh, we also established a goal for improving his oral motor skills to safely and efficiently manage a food and liquid. So again, we're, we're taking some goals that we can create that are measurable. Um, we can create some time periods and volumes and really make these all um, measurable, measurable in a piece of time um, to be able to see that change over time and being able to document that. Absolutely. Thank you, Julie. I, I love this example of of, um, of this case study. And it's really a testament to, to the OTPF's purpose. Um, I know me while I was in school and, and even as a new practitioner, sometimes I just want like a, a document or a resource that can just tell me what to do with like a specific diagnosis or a specific um, client that I'm seeing. Uh, but the OTPF really is designed to help practitioners of any level to really improve their clinical reasoning and consider other ways to think about and, and treat um, the people that they work with. 
Um, and I think this is a wonderful example of that. Absolutely. I think that there's this piece about the the OTPF that is so important to our as a, as a clinician who's been working for a while. Um, you know, when I was in grad school, <laughs> I learned about the OTPF um, over lots of time. You know, 20 years later. That information has changed. And I think something that's so important in the role of the COPs updates to the practice framework helps our profession stay current, stay connected to what is new research, what is new beliefs of our field as a whole. And it's really important that I as a clinician reference those changes and the evolution of the field. So if I was to only look at the OTPF, uh, you know, the original... (laughs) way back when, um, really, it's a different understanding. And I think that that was something that was really nice that I really appreciated as as a clinician and as um, an administrator is really to think about how has the profession evolved our understanding and our deepening, um, I think, particularly with um, view of context, the view of who we are as people and what are all the variety of ways um, that identifies who we are and what's meaningful to us. And that's, you know, so core to our profession is making sure we're, we're tapping into really what is meaningful uh, to this client or to this family that we're working with. I love that. I love that. And um, Caitlin, feel free to, to jump in. I want to ask some uh, wrap-up questions about this, this person-focused case. Um, how would you recommend a practitioner use the OTPF in a, a similar case working with a, an individual? I think, I mean, I think Julie spoke to this and I think you did as well, is that, you know, it's impossible for one document to give an example for every practitioner in every setting, right? And so really using it to help guide that clinical reasoning and think about, you know, I've done the occupational profile, but I still feel like something's missing. What else is it that I need to be looking at and bringing in that that context and environment piece or, you know, bringing in you know, considering the parent as part of the client that you're working with and that dynamic that's happening there. So I think even if it doesn't give a specific example directly to a person's practice, it can help guide, how do I think about this and how can I problem solve, especially um, when I'm stuck and, you know, or this is something new that I haven't uh, navigated before. I love that. Any other tips you'd like to share, Julie? Sure. I mean, I I think along the same lines, what I, re- I I keep bringing up context. That's the section of the OTPF updates that I think really resonated to me as a practitioner is I'm really appreciating our field's attention to all those individual components of who we are, how we identify, how we understand who we are. So culture, identity, gender identity, race. I think all of that is really important that we that we recognize and particularly at times I'm going to speak for myself, recognize that my understanding of my own personal um, who I am is different than what my clients is, or, you know, and recognizing that I'm not creating a filter of bias of, oh, that's not a problem for me, so it shouldn't be a problem for them. Um, when really our, our clients have a very different life experience and we need to be making sure that we're challenging ourselves to, to look and making sure that we're not creating a barrier in that care in some way. I, I love that. Thank you so much. And is there anything you wanted to add with the implementation and review or outcomes of the case study with James? Sure. So to wrap up, wrap up James, um, we had said, oh, let's, let's believe that this child had two hours a week of OT <laughs> in home um, for, for several months. And then over that period of time, oh, maybe that would reduce because he wouldn't need the same volume of care. And then ultimately we kind of said, um, at discharge. So what's the story of James at discharge was that at, oh, I guess we we put it six months out at 13 months of age that he decreased his reliance on his tube feedings. Again, collaborative practice with other with other professionals who might be working with this care, like the GI doctor um, or maybe a dietitian, to be guiding some of this, but that he's be able to accept two meals a day orally and additionally to have some of his tube feeding um, to support adequate hydration. Um, I think the other thing that we like to write into into cases like this is is family, and you know we're kind of writing this this kind of outcome of a story too of well how might this family change if there was the birth of of other children in the home, and so how might James's mother's experience or parents' experience change if 
well, if there's more than one child in the home and how might the care be offset then? So we kind of, we said at 30 months when he was discharged that he was able to eat all of his meals and snacks orally a day um, and that he sits with an, a younger sibling during meals. Um, and really we're trying to paint this, paint a picture of that at about two and a half that he was able to participate in mealtimes with his family at the level of what you might expect for a two and a half year old. Is that perfect? And is that clean? And is that, you know, always that he accepts everything that's put in front of him? No, <laughs> but that he's able to participate um, in the occupation of mealtimes and participate in that social exchange of mealtimes with his family comfortably and safely. Um, and that his parents feel very confident and comfortable in that process uh, as well. Cause that's a, that's a piece that we need to make it, keep in mind for young children is that we're also working with the family. I love that piece of collaborating with the family, and I think it's evident throughout each of these case applications the importance of collaborating with families and interprofessionally um, as well, uh, which I look forward to hearing more examples of from you both. I want to ask, how does the OT process um, really shift when you're going from working with an individual to working with a group? Yeah, it's interesting because I think sometimes we have a challenge in making this transition, but really the the process is, is parallel. Um, you just maybe have more people or more clients collectively that you're looking at, but really the goal of, of what you're doing, what you're starting out with, with developing an occupational profile and getting to know the members of the group and sort of the, the goals of the group as a whole. And then there's opportunity within that group piece to, again, look collectively at what barriers to performance might be for, for individuals identifying as part of this group. And then also, you know, looking at members individually and how those differences are contributing to the dynamics of the group as well, depending on, you know, sort of the setting and the circumstance. But the idea and the process is the same in identifying what those goals are, what's important to that group, uh, what are the barriers to performance, what are the strengths that people um, and the group have, and then you know what do we need to do to help facilitate to address what those barriers are. And again, looking at the outcomes, always focusing on you know engagement and meaningful occupation as as what is being worked toward throughout the entire process. So there's a lot of similarities. There's just, you know, some shifts and sort of thinking a little bit more collectively when you move into working with a group. Absolutely. I, I love that answer and, and your reiteration of how the OT process stays the same, but the way a practitioner approaches and, and thinks about the process and, and what they're going to do um, can change uh, to be, be more effective. Um, before we dive into our next group level case study, Julie, was there anything you wanted to add for our listeners from the James individual case application? Um, I, I think a fun part when we start creating cases is that we realize the amount and, and how important it is of the other professionals that we work with. We're, we're not alone as occupational therapists and that it's really important that we're connecting with other providers um, and other types of clinicians or other types of medical providers who might be help supporting our case at the same time. So while this case didn't have any um, we didn't add in in the story of other uh, developmental challenges or other clinicians he might be working with. But theoretically, in early intervention, it's possible that, that this child might be working with a speech therapist or a physical therapist um, or an infant teacher. And it's really important for us to keep considering what is our role with this family in this case and who are other people who are also supporting this family at the same time um, and additionally the, the, the medical team. So that's a, that's a part that is so common in our work and it's a good reminder for us that we're how do we fit in and and what are the unique what what are the unique components to the occupational therapy process of supporting this client and how is that different and how are our goals different than those other providers thank you i love that let's go ahead and and dive into this group level case study um a middle school diabetes group um, could you go ahead and introduce uh, uh, that case study for us, please? Um, so our, our group level uh, case specifically comes off of that table one in, in the OTPF and under health management. And this was an added area to, to the OT practice framework. Um, and so 
In table one, it said a group of students with diabetes interested in problem solving the school settings support for management of their condition. So that's kind of what we are given. (laughs) Now, tell a story about that. Um, So we came up with a a group. Um, So five middle school students, three in sixth grade, two in seventh grade at Harris Middle School in a large urban school district, created an informal diabetes group at the start of their academic year with a specific interest exploring opportunities in their school for supporting management of their condition. Four of the students have a history of type 1 diabetes, and one student has recently been diagnosed with type 2. Of the students with type 1, two have been managing their condition for over four years, and one of them was diagnosed three years ago, and one just within this past year. Students in the group have a variety of extracurricular interests. One student is very active in the school's soccer team, one in the orchestra, uh, and one on the school's robotics team. Two are involved in the choir. Four out of five of the students have attended school in this district since beginning of the school, and one moved into the district this school year. The group requested support of their school to become a formal school group with specific interest in advocating for their health needs on campus, including access to resources, location of supportive staff, nutrition and hydration needs, and class schedules. For example, students found that the location of the sixth grade lockers and health office on the north end of campus were difficult to access midday when their classes were primarily on the south end of campus. The students were also advocating for more consistent plans for managing their needs on school trips. So when we start writing stories about a group, uh, again, we really want to think about the group members as individuals with their own interests and their own background and the own understanding of their own personal condition. But as Caitlin said before, we also have to think about the needs of the, the, the combination of those individuals and what are the unique characteristics that unify and are similar to them. So in in the occupational therapy process, in particular, if an occupational therapist was working with these students, we would still be able to utilize the same framework uh, individually and then think about the needs as a group of a whole. So coming up with a occupational profile, either individually on the group members or the community profile. So we were thinking about, okay, so we have five middle school students all of them in some way are asking for support to help manage their their diabetes um, and are interested in needs and and needs for this um, for the group. So uh, additionally, when we start going into and analyzing and assessing um, pieces about occupational performance, we might look at things um, like the student's school routine, their class schedules, their different needs with their teachers, um, what are need what are what's feedback from their from the educators about this process and have their health needs been impacting their participation in classes. Um, for example, we give an example of a student um, commenting that their locker was too far away. So if they needed their um, diabetes um, testing materials, for example, but their locker was so far away, how would they be able to access them in the in the busy school day? And would it be possible to change locker locations, for example? Uh, Additionally, again, collaborative practice, the occupational therapist collaborating with the school nurse to assess skills for diabetes self-management, including their ability to read and understanding glucometer readings, knowledge of medication administration, and management of their own medical devices like insulin pumps. So thinking then about the group as a whole, um, a therap- the occupational therapist considering this daily school routine identified areas for students to problem solve and support their own self-advocacy to manage their condition in the context of their school day. This is, this is a wonderful case example again, um, and you're giving such clear examples of how the OT- OTPF can be used for working with groups in, the, in each of these steps. Um, can we talk more about... Uh, evaluation, intervention, um, and kind of what was done with this group uh, based off of, of following the OTPF, I guess? Sure, absolutely. So the first step is always initiating with, with an assessment and then coming up with an intervention process. So in intervention, uh, goals were created. So the goals for the group of students included identifying strategies to prevent hypoglycemia during the school day and activities, fitting in routines to check blood sugar levels and medication administration, uh, maybe using some supportive apps and self-advocacy with teachers and administrators regarding their needs for their own personal accommodations. 
additionally, group topics might have been meal options within the cafeteria, identifying symptoms of hypoglycemia, ways to advocate with teachers when needing to take breaks or to get a snack, identifying personal routines, communicating and sharing with peers around their diagnosis and health needs if they chose, and practicing health management skills. Additionally, working with the school nurse uh, to advocate and work with the school administrators to implement safe snack storage locations and communicated um, to necessary teachers uh, to monitor their conditions. And how about uh, the review step or, or the program evaluation once mm-hmm. these interventions were, were used? Absolutely. So in this case, we chose a shorter period of time. So at three months, the occupational therapist and the, and the school nurse worked together to review the students' progress towards their goal areas um, and self-efficacy in their skills presented. Environmental analysis was again completed to assess for barriers to health management uh, to make sure they have been mitigated. So again, that, that component of um, what are just structural barriers that might be impacting these students' ability to advocate their, for their own self and their needs? Um, uh, and additionally, kind of just environmentally, what, what's the physical space? And are, are there changes that can be supported within physical space within the school building for them to have access to the tools they need to manage their condition um, and maybe breaks in their schedule or daily school routine um, to be able to manage uh, their diabetes? Absolutely. And I think it, it's pretty clear when working with an individual uh, when to kind of discontinue treatment. Uh, You can clearly see when an individual is able to achieve their goals and participate meaningfully in uh, their chosen occupations. How do you approach discontinuation of a group intervention? Sure, yeah. And I think in this case example, you know, one of the bigger pieces of the intervention was that environmental adaptation. And that is an important part of the the group process because these all of the members of this group were functioning in the same environment. And so that's sort of a simple way of seeing that, you know, discontinuation of services might be needed because that environment had been modified and everyone was able to work effectively within that school setting to be able to manage their health needs. So that would be one indicator. Um, The other piece of this intervention was that the group met together to discuss these different health topics that were identified by the group as goals um, and important topics at the beginning. And so because those were identified collectively, that reassessment piece at the end would give an opportunity to say, hey, you know, we really feel comfortable with these particular topics, but we didn't spend enough time on these, or this new issue has come up. And engaging everyone together and reviewing those um, priorities then would help decide, do we need to spend more time together or do, you know, do we feel like our goals have been, been met? And in some cases, maybe there's one or two members of that group that need to transition to be seen individually, depending on the availability of that in that setting. Um, and so in this case example, we you know, we wrote it as identifying the students identified that they felt that their needs with working with the OT and the RN had been met. They were able to, um, you know, address those major concerns about the environment and the group topics. And the students identified their own desire to continue to meet informally as their own peer support group and without sort of the oversight of, of the OT or the RN. And so in this particular case, they transitioned from having direct services really to having developed their own dynamic that they were willing to continue on their own. And so, you know, with that, if the student goals and within the school setting, um, some of these students may be on 504 plans to help um, support their need for accommodations. And so that would continue, but that doesn't necessarily need to continue with the OT. Um, And so that may be a discontinuation process as well. And the formal group discontinues, the students continue to meet together. And, you know, I would say probably likely for students on a 504 plan um, in the school setting, that would be reevaluated again at the end of the school year and again at the beginning of the next school year to see what accommodations might need to be modified. So it sort of demonstrates that dynamic process, I think, always as we may meet a particular goal, but as life continues and we move throughout, um, you know, our age changes, different things change, that may bring us back to OT or we, you know, our clients might have gained those self-sufficiency skills and are able to problem solve independently without that. And in the case of the group, you may 
have some of those students do that and some not that might need to reconvene again um, at a different point in time. Absolutely. I, lo- I love that um, goal of, of sustainability and, and the goal being able to continue to meet on their, the group continuing to meet on their own um, and, and provide support for each other uh, after receiving all the support they needed from OT. That's a, a great example um, and a great focus and, and takeaway for all of our listeners. Um, what, what are some other major takeaways that you would say the OTPF can provide to help listeners when working with groups? Yeah, I think one of the key things that we tried, we made sure to include in the OTPF that there's group as a client and then there's group as an intervention. And those are two really different things. So when we're working with group as a client, we have, you know, we have a collective of individuals who, you know, have some short sort of shared characteristic um, versus, you know, group as an intervention where we kind of bring folks together to provide that. So I think It can be challenging to wrap your brain around that, um, but I think that's an important takeaway that we can we can look at a group of people and provide an intervention to them. um, Like in this case, the environmental modifications for the school, that is not necessarily an intervention where we you know, have everybody together as a group. So I think it's sort of growing our mindset a little bit around what can that look like when we have a group of people in front of us and to think again, a little bit outside the box about how we're providing interventions um, to to our clients as a group. Absolutely. Julie, is there um, another takeaway you'd like to highlight or, or add? You know, I, th- I think I just want to um, add to what Charlotte said. I, I, I think that the delineation of group as your client versus group as an intervention style is something that is really good for practitioners to kind of really think about and to think about how those are slightly different things and they have different needs. And so how do we create um, the process to identify the needs for a group, the group as a whole um, is something that when I was working and, and doing some of the reviews of the practice framework, it really, I had to spend time really wrapping my head around um, that idea for myself um, just because I, more traditionally work individually. So I'm very comfortable with as an individual as my client. And so really having to think about what does this mean um, in in our clinical work and the benefits of being able to think about that um, and knowing that other practitioners work regularly in group settings and how does how does the core of our professional experience still fit together? And how does this, um, this whole process of uh, evaluation and treatment and discharge really occur similarly, even as um, people work in different practice settings. I, I love that emphasis for a practitioner who, who maybe is wanting to increase their, their reach and begin working with more groups. How would you recommend they begin to, to make this distinction and, and use it in practice between um, group as a, as a client and group as an intervention? It's a good question. Um, <laughs> I think part of it is just sort of Beginning to recognize where you come across groups within your own practice. I think depending on your practice setting, you might think, oh, I only work with individual clients, but sort of recognizing, you know, where, where, where are these groups sort of forming themselves in the case of, you know, even James, the first case we talked about that could be expanded out to be James's whole family, right. And depending, and that might be a group. And so thinking about that dynamic playing in all together or you know in a you know if you're an ot working in a school there's groups of students within that so even though you may have individuals on your caseload starting to recognize where where these groups are popping up and where there's really opportunity to do some unique things as an ot um, by broadening and expanding our idea of what a client looks like absolutely um it is this is a tricky question i thought oh um, I think too, as as practitioners, we we find at times that there could be really good benefits of grouping clients together um, to have um, some social exchange and group process over maybe a similar identifying area of need. And so I'm thinking, you know, in in the example with James Pryor, while his treatment occurred individually, it's possible that maybe his family participates in a group setting to talk about, you know, parents' experiences of children with feeding needs and their parents would be allowed, you know, could participate in some sort of group um, uh, process for, for 
not just a support group, it could be a support group, but additionally kind of group strategies to work on that. And so, um, and we see this in different areas of practice. And so it's also really interesting to think about based on our areas of practice, um, where groups are more common practice and where they're not as common practice and kind of think about that and think about in our own advocacy efforts for our profession of where could we consider expanding that in some ways um, and where might it be beneficial for, for, our, in, for our clients' uh, goal areas or maybe at times a clinician's regularly challenged to be working in a group setting and maybe they find that they need to advocate for the opposite where, you know, this, this client is identified as a group participant, but maybe their goals and needs would be better met in an individual process. So again, that's really more in the kind of the group as um, kind of intervention side. <laughs> no, thank, thank you both for um, those, those insights. Um, I think the OTPF is a great uh, document and resource to help practitioners uh, kind of know the next step in a process if they want to add something to their clinical toolbox um, or, or scope but also encourages all practitioners to think creatively um, and, and approach uh, different treatments and, and working with different populations creatively as well. Well, we'll go ahead and finish up discussing the population level case study on serious mental illness and housing. Um, can you please describe this case application? Sure. Yeah. So we, for the case, um, on population, again, as Julie mentioned, this was sort of pulled from the initial examples in the OTPF4. And so we developed this out really to um, show an example of an OT working with a population, which I think, again, similar to working with groups, can be a bit of a shift for the OT practitioner. Uh, but the group that, or the population that we highlighted here, was an advocacy group of people living with serious mental illness who have partnered with a housing advocacy organization to address housing options within their community. An occupational therapy assistant in OTA is part of the group that's working on this issue in their community. And so with this, and this is actually reflected in one of the tables in the OTPF for um, looking at the process for the person, group, and population, What's interesting is when you look at population level assessment and intervention, the terms are different for the different steps, but the steps are actually relatively similar to that of working with an individual person or with a group. Um, and so you'll start with a needs assessment, which is very similar to the occupational profile, just at a population level. And so in this particular case, um, they did a needs assessment with different stakeholders in the community, which included people living with serious mental illness in the community, but also with people living with um, serious mental illness or SMI in an institutional setting, such as a nursing home, but are capable of moving into independent living. But you know, identifying what that barrier is, and that was part of the focus group, was to look at what are the these individuals, what are they identifying as a barrier for someone like them to move into independent housing in the community? And also to identify what are some facilitators or supports for more successful community integration. Then supporting that needs assessment is the data collection, which with an individual or a group, we might refer to as using the standardized assessment, right? Where we might look at performance or client factors. Um, this is, again, on a bigger scale for the population. In this particular case, um, it looked at several different factors, including what was the availability of accessible housing, which included units that have physical accommodations and accessibility, units that are in close proximity to needed community resources, such as public transit, and availability of housing supports, such as permanent supportive housing providers for those that might need it. Additionally, some data collection was the current, um, the length of the affordable and supportive housing waiting list in the community. So that was doing more of that objective assessment of, you know, what's going on in the community. So for folks who want to move into independent housing, can they even do that? What's available there? And then similar to the evaluation um, synthesis and bringing all that information together in the population process, you have the data analysis and interpretation, and you bring all of that information back together. In this particular case, the groups, the advocacy groups that had joined together looked at the themes from the focus groups, as well as the data on accessible and affordable housing, and identified major barriers to folks accessing housing in their community, which included both affordability. So they identified only two landlords in the community 
accepted subsidized housing vouchers, which is what many folks needed to have to be able to afford independent living. Then again, additionally, access and proximity to community resources, lower cost housing was found to be farther from public transportation, grocery stores and pharmacies and other amenities that would make a person be able to live independently in that space. And then finally, the third uh, barrier that was found is that people living with SMI in the community were unfamiliar with resources to help navigate the housing process. And those, when they were institutionalized, such as in a nursing home, have even less accesses and resources available as transition out wasn't necessarily a priority there. Um, and so the supports needed, you know, included a whole list of things. Um, basic things such as a computer to be able to locate particular programs or housing, um, or even being able to apply for a housing voucher. So through that um, data analysis interpretation, you get to the program planning stage, which again, in sort of OT language is very much that goal setting process. And so at the population level, you know, there were several goals identified for this group because there were several different stakeholders that need to be involved. And that's kind of what happens with population level work is that there is many different um, people involved in this. And so the intervention itself in the program is going to address several of these different things. So one of the intervention pieces um, or goals was to host informational sessions for people living with serious mental illness on the resources and the process to gain independent housing and targeting those who were seeking to access independent housing. And these sessions were de developed in partnership with the advocacy group and the occupational therapy assistant to make sure that the information was accurate, included the perspective of the consumers and the peers and those with lived experience, and also making sure information was accessible, such as um, ensuring appropriate levels of literacy and physical access to information. Then with the program planning, again, at the population level, there's a couple different people involved. There was also educational sessions for landlords in the community on the benefits of accepting housing vouchers, which would address some of the barriers to accessing housing as not having enough affordable units. And then again, the OTA can partner with other advocacy groups to provide overall community education and debunk myths regarding residents living with serious mental illness, which again can be a barrier for developing some more affordable housing. Um, and then again, the OTA specifically kind of focusing on the OT's role with this with this population level work with to support identifying and developing physically accessible spaces, education um, and skill building to identify community resources, making sure that these resources are accessible um, to all community members um, and help advertise and um, educate different groups of people. And additionally, the OT practitioner can work with these groups to synthesize the data that they found um, from those needs assessments and identify for the community the benefits of deinstitutionalization of individuals seeking to live in the community. Um, so again, there's a lot of moving pieces with this and the practitioner, the OTA, is not responsible for all of them, but can be a partner and can bring in that really unique OT lens, um, you know, considering the context and the accessibility of spaces that other professionals and members may not be able to bring into the community. Absolutely. This is a, a wonderful case example. Um, I know conducting a needs assessment and, and developing a, a population program um, it seems like a, a, a huge undertaking. Um, I, I want to ask what supports exist within the OTPF um, or, or another source that you may recommend that practitioners could follow to conduct these aspects of a population evaluation um, and, and intervention. Yeah, I think in the OTPF, and now I'm forgetting that exact table number, I think it's either table 10 or table 12, um, really outlines what these steps are for the OT process. So it does it for the individual and the group, which can be really helpful, but then it does it um, also with the population. And so even just to become familiar with the terminology, if you're doing population health work and you haven't done that before to sort of speak that language as well as OT language to really see the similarities of that. And I think the other really important thing um, to think about, which is reflected in the OTPF, at the end of the day, it's all about what the client goals are, right? So if you're going to engage with a population, you don't have to take it all on yourself and you don't have to decide 
independently what's going to happen, but you want to engage with that population of people to identify what are their priorities, what are the major needs, and what can we do to support that process. Um, and those are all skills that OTs have. And I think sometimes we forget to recognize that um, in working with these larger um, populations and communities. Absolutely. Um, thank you, Caitlin. Can we go ahead and wrap up this case study, maybe outlining the major outcomes and sustainability and dissemination? Yeah, absolutely. So um, as part of the population process, there's a program evaluation, um, and that really helps assess whether or not this intervention was effective. Um, and so the evaluation that was determined to be conducted was to assess the number of available units after four years. So giving, you know, this is a large community-based undertaking, right? So it, we need to allow time to, for these changes to happen. Um, and then assessing the number of people who are able to apply for housing assistance and vouchers and the number of new landlords accepting these housing vouchers, which would increase um, the number of folks able to live in the community. And then some smaller evaluation outcomes is how many people attended the educational sessions for people living with serious mental illness and also for landlords, right? So in order for the information to be, um, to be used in a applied and disseminated, folks have to come to get that. Um, and so that was another piece of the evaluation. So I'm looking at outcomes, which again can feel, I think, sometimes overwhelming at the population level. In this particular case, the outcomes were identified that more individuals living with serious mental illness who want to live in the community independently are able to do so. And that could be demonstrated by them having knowledge of resources and pathways to accessing housing, and also folks um, demonstrating satisfaction with their current living situation. So for those that move into independent housing, feeling supported and, uh, and like they are satisfied with where they are. And then overall looking to see, is the context of the community less restrictive? Are there more opportunities for people to live independently? And those were two really, really critical outcomes in this. Um, and then with, we spoke to this before in population work, um, the sustainability plan, right? So we've done all this work, we've done all this advocacy and education. We want to make sure that this continues. We don't want to lose our progress here. So in this particular case, one of the actions of sustainability was to support legislation to maintain housing waitlists under a certain number so that folks didn't have to wait a really long time to access housing um, and continued um plans for biannual education for landlords and for people living with serious mental illness in the community so that these education sessions continued so that people would continue to have access to this knowledge and information. And then that dissemination plan is similar to the discharge, right? So the same group of people who started this work don't necessarily have to continue it at the end, but instead, hopefully there's a process for that to continue, such as legislation um, or this advocacy group, um, you know, committing to continuing on with this work for a certain period of time um, and be able to report on the benefits that came out from having people move into the community and, and become members of the community. Thank you so much. Each, each of these case studies is um, wonderfully prepared and there's so much to gleam from all of them. Um, unfortunately, we're running low on time. Um, so I'm going to try and touch on a, a, a couple um, key points with, with this question. Um, and I want to ask you both, um, what, what supports or, or what ways could someone use the OTPF um, to make an impact at, at any of these three levels? I'm going to keep talking about this table, but I really think it was helpful um, as someone who's as an OT who's transitioned from doing sort of more individual client work over this past year to working for a national organization where I do population level work. Um, I think seeing the parallels in the process was really helpful for me. And I didn't even really realize I was using it that way until recently. And I was um, writing up these plans for um, giving assistance to these programs who received um, grant funding. And I realized as I was doing it, it was like, I'm basically writing an OT intervention plan for these organizations. Um, you know, we did, we asked them what their goals were, and then we had them do an organizational self-assessment. And I was collecting that together to identify what we're going to work on. And it just was so innate um, to me to, to do it that way, that it, it sort of surprised me once I realized that's what was happening. But I think just understanding how how the process is the same regardless of who you're working with and that at the core of it right is you're always focusing on what the 
goals are of the person and, and getting them to be able to engage in what they want to engage in in their community. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Actually, I find myself, um, I'm, I'm a clinician, but additionally, I'm an administrator of a clinic and, and um, I find myself using this process, particularly this, you know, past couple years where our work really had to change pretty significantly from in-person to remote. Um, and as we are slowly shifting back again, I find myself using this whole process as I think of, you know, the clinicians, clinicians of this organization as, as my group, you know, um, or how, how, what's the work that we do as an organization as a whole. Um, so it's been really helpful for me in my other roles and my other types of work that I think it certainly wasn't ever intended in that way, but it, it's, I, I think it's so nice how we think as OTs as we work through a challenge and how we, we set up that process of, of what's the information we gather at the start and what are all the components that we're considering and then how do we think about the process to carry that out and forward, uh, which has been really neat. I think the other thing that has been really interesting and amazing to think about um, in our work on the practice framework and on even as an example of creating cases like this is how wide and diverse our professional profession is and the capacity of our profession in different types of settings and different types of work. So it's really um, quite interesting to think about what are the core features that are so similar in our process, even though the clients or the groups or the, um, you know, the, the population level work that we're engaging with as clinicians is very different, but what are the similarities at the core of that has been really interesting to hear about and to think about um, in all of our our different settings. Absolutely. Thank you both so much. Um, Our practitioner listeners, you you have the skill set, you have the knowledge um, and the OTPF as demonstrated in these cases can help you really organize that and um, really guide how you can think and approach um, each of these situations to make a a large impact. Um, I want to thank you both for sharing uh, your knowledge and your expertise with us today. Um, It's been wonderful having you on. And uh, we just have two last questions as part of our our conclusion. Um, First being, what additional resources would you recommend to our listeners who would like to improve their practice? Gosh, I mean, an easy answer for this question is there's certainly, um, you know, to dive more into the OTPF4 and the changes, there is the continuing education course offered by AOTA on the OTPF4. Um, And so if you're finding sort of just being overwhelmed navigating that on your own, um, that course is available just to guide into it. And like Julie mentioned, even if you've been in practice for a long time, you know, it's, it, the document has evolved and changed. Um, and so it's helpful, I think, every once in a while to sort of touch back to our roots and sort of that basis of knowledge and, you know, in reviewing the OTPF and listening to some courses on it just to just to gain an understanding of what has changed over time. Absolutely. I think really, I like how you said, you know, grounding yourself in the roots of the profession, you know, kind of like, what is it that we do? Particularly as I'm thinking about practitioners who might be new to the field or new to an area of practice is that there's so much to learn on, you know, kind of quote on the job, you know, kind of it's, there's a lot to learn in all of our different diverse areas of practice. And to be able to find some resources that are really grounding is but what is the identity of the occupational therapist, right? Like, what are we doing? What is the core of the professional experience is so important. There's so many amazing resources then additionally for, um, you know, supporting clinical work in all different experiences and so much that AOTA is already doing. So I think getting involved in different communities, communities of practice is a huge resource and tool that's out there that I think, um, I think sometimes clinicians are a little bit unsure how to get involved or might be anxious to get involved in those places. But, um, you know, it literally is a community to talk about a specific topic. Um, you know, all the online resources, um, you know, and, and just always be kind of what else is out there and staying connected to the organization, I think, really helps and leads and guides people with more information. Um, that's quite easy to access once you start looking for it. Absolutely. Thank you both so much for those recommendations. And our last question, this is our golden nugget segment that we like to end each show on. Um, If you could tell practitioners one thing, what would it be? 
I think um, for me, it's just don't forget that the root of all of this in occupation. Um, I think it's sometimes easy to forget that when you're in a busy and a stressful environment and we have all these health system mandates about you know doing standardized assessments and reporting certain information and documentation, all these pieces that you know we don't those are not our favorite pieces about our job. But I think really going back to that core of like why am I doing this and, and how am I supporting the person and, and how am I living the quality of life that they want to be living? Um, I think sometimes can be a helpful reminder in those times, especially over this past year um, of in some cases, just sort of getting through the day, being able to focus back on that person in front of you and, and what they want in their life outside of your OT session and recognizing where the facilitators of that um, you know, can sometimes be re-energizing when we hit those moments of, of burnout. Absolutely. And I'm going to add in meaning. You know, we talk about our occupations being meaningful and purposeful. And I think that what is the meaning of this activity for the client I'm serving? And is it meaningful for me as the practitioner or is it meaningful for them as in, in their work? And so I think that's something that... Um, it's important that we all challenge ourselves to make sure that the work that we're doing is meaningful for the clients we're working with. Absolutely. I love that. Thank you both so much for sharing those golden nuggets um, and for your time today. It's been a pleasure having you on. Um, I know I'm feeling like I learned a lot from you both um, and feeling inspired to continue to grow my mindset um, and, and use the OTPF. Um, so thank you both so much. And it was a pleasure. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for listening to Everyday Evidence. Tune in next time for more evidence-based practice insights and applications.